Problem Gambling podcast is proudly sponsored by Gamban, the simple and effective way to block access to online gambling on all your devices. If willpower slips, Gamban doesn't. Go to gamban.com to find out more. Hello and welcome to the Problem Gambling podcast. I'm Barry Grant, an addiction counsellor with Extern Problem Gambling. My co-host is Tony O'Reilly, also an addiction counsellor with the project and the co-author of the book Tony 10. And today we thought we'd have a look at something I saw on Twitter the other day. It was one of the uh, health service executive regions, CHO8, uh, for people who live outside of Ireland. That's like our national health service. They put up this great um, uh, image or kind of information thing on uh, eight ways your brain is preventing self-awareness. And I was looking at it going, this could be written for gambling. (laughs) These types of biases and things that the average brain does uh, could have been written for gambling. And, you know, we're always looking for new angles and new things to talk about on the podcast. So myself and Tony are going to unpack it like bosses today, like gambling addiction counseling bosses. We will unpack all these biases. And if you're not a person who gambles or who's in recovery, uh, from gambling, I guarantee you, you're wide open to all of these anyway, right? That most people uh, experience these cognitive biases uh, just as a normal part of, of being a human. So hopefully you'll get something out of it. Uh, Tony, what did you think of these, kind of your first look at it? Yeah, you could definitely relate them to gambling, but uh, definitely other areas of life as well. And and you mentioned the word unpacking it. I just mentioned the word rambling on about it, which is good too. <laughs> Uh, yeah, they are very good. I, I remember reading it on Twitter there last week as well. Um, and yeah, we, we'll, there's eight of them, so we'll pull it apart, I suppose, from a gambling point of view. And maybe anyone listening who mightn't have um, gambling issues can maybe readjust it to their own thinking styles around certain parts of their life. Absolutely. Okay, so we'll put up the image of this uh, on the, the podcast episode as well but we'll go through them uh, one by one so the first one of these eight ways your brain is preventing self-awareness is we have an unreliable memory now how does that apply to gambling tony o'reilly what are your thoughts on that one off the top of your head but the one that comes to mind straight away will be we don't remember our wins we very rarely um think about or even register our losses because we kind of put into some compartment in the back of our heads because in recovery, you know, when the temptation does come to have a bet, it's always, usually, sorry, not always, it's based on emotion. So it could be like for last week, Cheltenham might have been a trigger for so many. So you remember even the days out or the, the really good days out where you had that big winner and you're in the pub or you're watching at home and you got caught up in the emotion or the excitement of it. But we sometimes we, we remember that, but then we forget about the um, the fact that we probably lost it all and at the half six in Fakenham or whatever horse races on the evenings nowadays afterwards. So we focus on the the good emotion for for that thing and we forget about the bad emotions. I think well while working in with alcohol um, addiction, um you'd often hear people talking about the beer gardens. It's when, you know, they're walking past the beer gardens in the summer and it's the you know, it's the sun is shining. Everyone's mood is usually elevated when the sun is shining. Um you hear the kind of hustle and bustle, the banter, you see the glasses, you might even smell it, you know, smell the beer, What all that would trigger them to think about, I would love to go back to being in the beer garden. And they might forget about the devastation that alcohol has after causing them for the years previously, when they were probably drinking at home behind closed curtains or 
drinking isolated, but they're, they're brought right back to that moment. So I think within that, we have an unreliable memory when it comes to, um, or maybe um, unreliable, might could be just kind of, we have a memory that we just want to pick out things. Yeah, and our memory is biased towards positive experiences. So again, people famously uh, remember the wins in gambling much more than they remember the losses. Now, unless you're some sort of a super genius gambling robot, you're losing more than you're winning, right? And if by some fluke you're winning more than you're losing, you're not going to be able to get a bet on anywhere. So forget about that, right? That's just not happening. So you are definitely losing more than you're winning. That's just the laws of probability, and that's how the gambling business works. It's totally legitimate. There's nothing funny going on there. The house has to have an edge, no matter what type of gambling it is. And there's that thing, you know, there's that great Irish expression, et bread is soon forgotten. <laughs> you, know, you just move on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And yeah, definitely, I've seen that back when I was working more with people around alcohol and, and trying to abstain or recover from alcohol issues summer would roll around and in ireland we'd have the bulmers cider ads and they do you know, <laughs> even the sound both of us worked as bartenders you know the sound of pouring a pint bottle of bulmers into a glass full of ice and you know they they do the advertising of that really effectively and people have all the positive associations again we just had cheltenham uh here last week was cheltenham so again, a lot of people might start off their gambling there. It's very sociable. There's a lot of drinking, going to the pubs. Some people will actually go from Ireland or you know, if you're living in the UK, go down to the Cheltenham Festival. Lots of positive associations with it, usually from back at the time when it was moderate and it was sociable and it was fun, right? The same with the people who were drinking. It's harking back to the positive times good times it was moderate it was sociable it was fun or at least relatively moderate and it wasn't destroying your life <laughs> right exactly and if you look at the, even the advertisement for the gambling it's all based on fun and based on excitement and that brings you back to the time when gambling may have been fun or excitement like you know I, last week i was um one of the days um i was just switching up through the channels and was on it was either bbc or virgin media wherever it was and Cheltenham was on and rachel blackmore had just come back from winning on Honeysuckle. Now, I couldn't even name your horse before last week. I know Honeysuckle won because I, I stayed on the interview for a couple of minutes. Like, I wasn't watching a horse race. You know, the, the gambling police would be kind of saying, you shouldn't watch this. I don't generally watch it. But what I did notice is that when she was there, like, you know, the crowds were there. It was, it was, um, it was really, you know, there was a buzz there. She was just after winning. She, they were saying that she, she wasn't able to be there. When she was won last year, there was no crowds there. So it was... You do get caught up in the emotion of it. You kind of because you connected the person or you connected the sport. And I kind of went, I was able to kind of nearly compartmentalize that and say, Yeah, that's great, great sports person, win it. And then obviously she won the gold cup afterwards. It's um it's brilliant for her, it's brilliant for the sport aspect. And and it really just reinforced me that a lot of people do enjoy gambling for, for those reasons. But when I was looking at it, I would kind of say it didn't, I tend to be able to kind of drag myself back and say it didn't bring me back to those enjoying moments because I think in my situation, there's too many horrible moments that I, I'm able to quickly go back to them. And even while doing the school talks fairly regularly, I'm constantly reminded of those moments. Um, and I think that keeps me grounded that I never want to go back there. I think even when we had Nick on last week, the gambling guard, he was saying that, um, you know, that when he got the um, printout of all his losses, it was it was a great way for him to really reinforce why he was in recovery and never wanting to go back to that. So I think 
I think that's always a good um, a good way of doing it to to always remind yourself of of the bad memories, um, not in a way that's overwhelming. Another client I worked with before used to write out, um, you know, you would do cost benefit of gambling, you know, you do benefits of not gambling. And he used to do it obsolete. He'd write out, if I do go back gambling, I lose that peace of mind. I lose that good night's sleep. I lose my financial stability. So he used to have it in his wallet. And every time he was thinking about, oh, I'd love to go place a bet, or when he might be triggered by other people talking about, he'd take out that piece of paper and read it. And that used to reinforce to him why he's in recovery or why he's not gambling anymore. And I think that's really important. I think that kind of touches on a lot of that first statement. Yeah, and it's good to be able to refresh our flaky memories with factual statements like that, right? Because we will forget the bad stuff. Like anybody uh, who has more than one child will tell you that <laughs> they somehow managed to forget all the sleepless nights and the uh, the tough going that it was with a newborn baby, you know, a few years down the road. And they said, oh, sure, we'll go again. And then cut to, why did we do this? <laughs> How did we talk ourselves into this situation? You know, our memories are flaky, right? And we tend to focus on the positive. That can be useful, but it's also something that can trip us up. The next one is the sunk cost fallacy. I mean, Jesus Christ, like this could have been written for people with gambling problems, right? The sunk cost fallacy, we don't know when to cut our losses. Now, this doesn't only apply in gambling. You know, we see this in all walks of life. You know, we saw it uh, in Ireland and around the world uh, around 2008 when we had a credit bubble that fueled a property bubble. Uh, and rather than people go and say, oh, hang on a second, <laughs> we're driving the economy off a cliff here. Everybody just said, we'll just keep doubling down. We'll lend people more money. We'll build more expensive houses and sell them to each other. You know, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> right? Just keep doubling down on the original bad idea, right? The sunk cost fallacy. It, it applies in lots of different walks of life, but obviously we're looking at it from a gambling perspective. Not knowing when to cut your losses is probably the single biggest indicator that you have a problem with gambling right because if you're not cutting your losses you are chasing your losses right if you're chasing your losses you're in trouble right if you can take a loss that's within your means that you kind of set out that look i'm going to go to the bookies there or go to the casino i can afford to lose 50 quid and that's the price of me having my bit of entertainment grant if you can do that and walk away and cut your losses happy days i'm happy for you if you struggle to do that and you have a strong urge to get that 50 quid back and you chase your losses, that is not a good sign, right? And that's a slippery slope for a lot of people. Again, the flip side of that is being able to walk out the door with your winnings, right? So be able to pocket the winnings, say, thank you very much, Mr. Bookie, your casino owner, and walk out the door with your winnings. What are your thoughts thoughts on that one, Tony? Totally agree. I think it's the it's the cornerstone of gambling addiction, that chasing losses. Um, and I also think that um, the way that gambling is set up, especially online at the moment, really lends itself to not being able to cut our losses. Like if you, again, what when I, years ago, I suppose when I started gambling, um, you go in, you place your bet on a Saturday afternoon on football, come five o'clock, it's either after winning or losing. Um, I didn't go running back in at half five to try, um, um, to try win that money back. Now, as I was developing the problem, I did start running down to the bookies before online and going in a half five and placing a few bets on on evening time football matches. Now, when you're online, it's uh, you're you start your gambling in the morning on Australian soccer, 
And then when that loses, you'll have a group of events on that you'll probably bring you up to lunchtime. And that loses, then you're chasing your loss in the afternoon on crap that you don't even know anything about. And then that evening you'll start chasing. So you never actually stop. And it's not, I often, I often speak about in the schools as well, like, you know, at the start, I was gambling on things I knew about, like, well, kind of knew about, like Premier League football or Championship football. And you could take or leave and uh, debate and walk away. At the end, when I was gambling on absolutely everything, um, even when you had a big win, you're kind of, it's it's that thing, it's the desperation of the addiction. For me, it was trying to get that money back, that money that I'd stolen back. And it's like, I, it's not that you can wait till Saturday to say, right, I'm going to go back in and do something that I know about. It's kind of right, what's next? What's available next? And that's where the online aspect or the in-play aspect comes in because there's always something you can gamble on. And as I've often mentioned, even when the sports ran out, I was gambling on virtual stock exchange, 1,000 euro spin, whether it's over 0.001 or under that. And that's, it's set up to kind of, when we when we can't cut our loss because we're addicted to it, like you can't walk away at that point because you, you need to, get that need met or that need or that fix or you need to try fix the problem that's in there and a lot of times if it's, it is a financial problem you're thinking i have to fix it now i have to go in right now and do it i can't wait till tomorrow in case i get discovered i have to get it done straight away so you do end up gambling on stuff that you don't know anything about um and you're just basing on the odds that are provided by the bookmakers which might not be reflective of the price i always use your one about the first goal score it's not really reflective of what can happen within that but then they'll say oh here's an extra bonus, we're giving enhanced odds, or oh, that must be a good value. So it's all based on psychology to keep us playing. And then when we're chasing losses, if you mix the two of them together, it's a recipe for a disaster for the person who's addicted. Yeah, no, you, you said it all there. I mean, it's just, it's the strongest. If you're listening to this and you're on the fence and you're not sure if you have a gambling problem or the, the person in your life has a gambling problem, it is the single strongest indicator that you have an unhealthy relationship with gambling if you can't cut your losses, if you're chasing your losses, it's a problem. Like similarly, if you can't just say, you know, take your winnings, walk out the door and go spend it on something else or, you know, put it into your pot. If you're, you know, there are some sensible people out there who would gamble, you know, within their means and sensibly, and maybe they put it into the pot for next week, you know, happy days. Great. That's, that sounds reasonably healthy, but if you're you know, on the way up, if you're getting greedy on the way up with the winnings and chasing your wins, that's a problem. And if you're getting desperate and chasing losses on the way down, that's also a problem. So just to keep an eye out for that. But again, this does not just apply to gambling, right? We have all have uh, the capacity in our own lives to take a bad idea and double down on it in the hope that the doubling down the original bad idea will somehow magic up a good idea. And of course, Tony, maybe you just touch on this briefly because the, the real problem and the thing that drives chasing losses is that once in a blue moon, and this is back to our, our flaky memory thing, once in a blue moon, you're chasing your losses and it works out, right? And I've worked with so many people, they're down to their last tenor, they've blown the rent, they've blown the mortgage money, they've blown all these money that they really desperately need for important bills. Then they have some mad accumulator on their last tenor or whatever it is, the clicks, boom. You're going to remember that. That's a lifesaver. You've spoken you know, in your book as well about at your wedding, how, uh, you know, in a moment of desperation, an accumulator bet clicked, saved the day. That's going to stick with you much more than the hundreds or thousands and thousands of different individual losses or cumulative losses. So can you just maybe just talk a little bit about that part of it, either from your own experience or from your experience as a, as a counsellor? 
Definitely, I think I think a lot of people will will always remember the big win, and, and we, as we always say, like you know, it's it's commonly accepted that you can't drink away over an alcohol problem, but with gambling, it's it, you'll always focus back on well, that big win, and then you, I think we'll probably touch on the next one or one of the ones down the line where you think that you can have an input on this, like I have a system, and if I done it a certain way that day, and if I do the same again, it's going to come in, the bet's going to come in. There's been loads of those examples in my own story, and the wedding obviously is the, the big one of it. But there's been moments, even in early, early kind of where it wasn't a, a huge problem. It was still looking back, I still was probably addicted. But it, you know, at a time when you needed to kind of get that money in to pay off the mortgage, when you've overstretched yourself with taking money out of the account that you shouldn't have, you get that one bet that gets you back. Even um, even when I was in Belfast and I had six hundred sterling, and the first place I went to was into the bookies because that's my that was my safe haven. I could you know I was under so much stress and anxiety that that's where I went in and I lost five races in a row of 100 sterling each race and the last race of the evening I won at six or seven to one which meant that I had enough I had my money back so I was kind of like you know I can I can always get out of this problem and the problem is then until it doesn't work until that one time and that, I think that's when the chase of losses really really kicks in because you start panicking thinking well it's worked every other time before why didn't it work this time I need to get back on on the horse to use analogy, I suppose, straight away and go back in. And then we're betting on the back foot then because we're not betting on on our on our um on our research. We're betting on what's next available. So I think there's there's lo- there's loads of examples and definitely working with people. Um you'll often hear that gesture. I got, you know, and it's sometimes it's when they mentioned when 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 they needed it to have a night out or pay for a holiday or whatever that might be. And again, you can link the emotion or the of going on that holiday or paying for that, whatever you need to pay for. And that, I think, kind of really reinforces that feeling that I can always do this. Um, but unfortunately, if you're gambling more, you're as you always say, you're going to end up losing more. Yeah, and that's the reality of it. And like all of these different kind of built-in flaws and biases that we all have, quite often they can kind of gang up against us in life right doesn't have to be always in gambling scenarios but this is the problem gambling podcast that's what we're going to focus on but we are all susceptible to all of these biases right so that was the sunk cost fallacy again probably the most important one but the next one is the self-serving bias so we blame external factors when things don't go well but take full credit for when things do go well. Now, can you see any link there with gambling, Tony? <laughs> it's, it's all about, um, you know, it's, it's that thing of if um, you have a football match and your your last your last kind of, um, your last match of the four-part accumulator and then the referee doesn't give uh, everything a penalty against Man City, against Diaz, and you start going on your conspiracy theories, oh, it's all about the, the big teams get the decisions. And you could have been let, left down for a bet on that. But you can blame everyone else. So you'll blame the ref, you'll blame the Premier League or whoever else. Um, and you you can be left vindicated saying, well, I would have got that bet up only for that. Uh, and that can lead you to kind of say, well, that near miss phenomenon kind of, well, I nearly won, so I must be due a win. Do you know that kind of, you know, when you're chasing wins or chasing losses? Um, like I remember talking to someone before and he was convinced, um, I, think he, I think he went up to the woman in the counter and was starting, trying to argue her about something in a virtual race that the jockey had fallen off the horse or something that happened. He was so convinced. I forget exactly what it was, but I remember even when, when we were talking about it, we were doing counseling at the time in Cumbria, I remember we were talking about it, and he was even laughed about the fact he was so convinced that there was um, 
there was there was something else to play. And then I remember even I mentioned with the virtual race, and I used to do 14 to one shots, 100 euro each way. When even I think back on it, like it's just madness. And um, when, you know, I would always think that when the virtual race is beyond and next thing your house, horse be on front, next thing this thing would come from way back. And I know it's all based on algorithms and it, it's all, but I would be thinking they have a certain race set up that if I have a certain amount of money on it, they're, they're targeting me so that I'm not going to win. So I'm blaming the system or I'm blaming Paddy Power or Labrooks, whoever else it might be, where the fact is just based on algorithms. Um, but that's what we do. We, we'll, we'll blame everything in those moments. Or then when we do win, it could be, well, I've worn my lucky underpants today. So the next time I go gambling, I'm going to wear my, my lucky underpants, whether they're ones about 14 holes in them or not, or the socks or whatever it might be. I think, I think that's definitely, um, we take full credit then. Um, it's a little bit like my first bet when Clyward and Holland 2 1. You take credit, yeah, I picked it out because I really felt it was going to happen. It was just, I could have picked any score that day, pure random. But when it does come up, you kind of go, yeah, chest out, I'm brilliant, aren't I? And well, that wasn't can, that a special that was on the board, no? It was, but there was loads of specials. Okay, so it could have been, uh, could have been Burkham score first and Holland to win 2 1. But because I Clyward in my head, and it was just like that could have lost it, like we always, what would have happened, but. It's like that thing of, yeah, I picked this, aren't I? You know, it really massages the ego. Or if, how many times you see a um, person coming in with a tip for a horse and he gives it to everyone else and they say, and they say like, you know, you're, you're thanking them for, you know, this tip. And it really, it, it, it really brings that connection piece back in where we connect to emotion. I know I've mentioned that a few times, but I think that's definitely at play here um, because we feel we have an outcome on the event. If I pick a certain team or if I do it at a certain time of day or do it in a certain bookies because I wonder before like you, you look at the lottery they put up a winner sold here because <laughs> oh, the winner sold there I more of a chance of winning it there which is untrue but that, that's how uh, you always mention that we look for patterns um, and I think that's what we do I think a lot of that so I think that's that's definitely another big um, part of it like we blame external factors like even um I wouldn't be, I wouldn't have been gambling this time, but any power comes to mind when they say, oh, Ruby Walsh fell on him. Was he, is there a big conspiracy theory there about that? Um, I don't really know. I just, that's only going from what I hear other people talking about. I wasn't gambling the time. I, I didn't even know that any power was a horse. I thought it was a person. So, um, but it just shows you where we'll blame someone or we'll blame, we'll blame how a jockey rode a horse or we'll blame the ground or we'll blame the fact that he had a bad draw or to blame the fact that another horse jumped in front of him. That's part of sport. It's the unpredictability, but we feel we can predict the future. And that's what gamblers feel that we can predict the future. Yeah, and it's that overestimation of your skills. So, I mean, when things don't go your way, it's because, you know, the refs are biased, you know, in favor of the big teams or, you know, that that some jockey, you know, was given the nod to pull up a horse or whatever your favorite conspiracy theory of the day is. But, when you're winning, you know, all that stuff goes out the window and it's just about what a super duper wonderful uh, person you are at predicting the future and reading the form and yada, yada, yada and beating the bookies and all that good stuff. So, I mean, we all have a tendency to do this as well. You know, this, we'll blame the external factors when things aren't going our way, but take full credit when things do go well. That occurs in lots of different walks of life, but it's it's a big one in gambling and that kind of overestimation of your own skill. Usually yeah, this is where the big wins really mess people up early on. You have an early big win, especially if you're young, you know, a teenager and you go, sure, I, I know what I'm doing here. This is easy. The classic phrase we've heard on this podcast so many times. 
and you start thinking, well, I know what I'm doing. I can do this. Um, and then when it doesn't go your way, it's because, you know, all these different things are conspiring against you or like that. The bookies have rigged the virtual slot machine to specifically <laughs> yeah, if a certain amount of money comes in on a certain bet. Well, no, we can't have them win. We'll have it you know, finish in last place. Whereas, you know, it's an algorithm. It's a random number generator. Uh, I I think if I remember correctly, the reason you used to do 14 to 1 on the virtuals was because you had a big winner on 14 to 1 in the virtuals, which totally blows your theory out of the water in the first place, right? It's just random. The bookies, in fairness to them, I, I don't know for 100%, but I believe or I strongly believe that they don't have to rig these machines to suck all the money out of your pockets. You know, human nature just kicks in and you become your own worst enemy and you hand over the money willingly. I don't think they have to fix it. Obviously, they have an edge. And if you look up, they will tell you, you know, on the online gambling sites, what the return to player percentages are on all the different games, anything that has a random number generator on it. I don't think they have to fix that necessarily. I think you will just, if you have any sort of an unhealthy relationship with gambling, you're, you will become your own worst enemy uh, in the end anyway. Okay, so the next one is confirmation bias so we seek information that supports our pre-existing beliefs anything jumping out at you there in relation to gambling tony um not really i suppose maybe the the, the again the example might use in the schools where you know you might say if there was a virtual roulette wheel up here if it was nine reds in a row what's next and part of you might think well it has to be black because nine reds come in a row and, and then um, part of us might think it has to be red because red is on a roll and I think we seek that information even though the, the logic will be that it's 50-50 or thereabouts so I think I don't know whether that's that answer like we seek information like I think I know a friend of mine every every well, I don't know if he still does but on the way home from um, from, the, from the pub he go into the book he's put 50 euro on black or red or he has one colour he does it but the information would be that black is luckier or red is luckier and that's his experience or the information that he has based on whether he saw it in a film or whatever i don't know i, I don't know what, exactly what he used to do but just just go in and if he won if he if he put it on at one he'd stay and he'd win a certain one then leave or if he lost he'd just walk home he wouldn't stay to chase his losses but it was kind of like the information he had was that he would be watching what's after coming up based on oh it's, it's due to this and that i don't know whether that's exactly what that is maybe you could elaborate on it yeah, I think definitely with the roulette thing, um, and they do with the lucky numbers and a lot of numbers, I think, in bookie shops as well. They'll show you, let's say, what the last five spins were on the roulette wheel. This information is no bleeding use to you whatsoever, right? It does not help you in any way, shape, or form to predict what the next spin of the roulette wheel is going to do, whether it's black, red, green, or a specific number that you think is going to come up next. No way does it help you. It does nothing to help you in any way, shape, or form to predict. If you saw the last thousand spins, it still wouldn't help you in any way, shape, or form to predict with any accuracy what the next one is going to be, even just down to the level of black, red, or green. Never mind specific numbers. Forget about it. Right. So why do the gambling industry put that information up there? It's because they know that we are all primed to do exactly what you just described. And I've done talks, you know, with our training days, you know, CPD training days with counselors and psychotherapists and nurses at different parts of the country. And it's one of the things that I'll always do. I'll put it up on the screen 
say that you know I've just spun the roulette wheel five times, came up uh, red the last five times in a row. Hands up who thinks the next one's going to be black, and ninety percent of the people in the room put up their hands say it's going to be black, right? Why do you think it's going to be black? Because the last five were red. Now, at the same time, they're intelligent people. I'm sure everybody listening to this podcast is an intelligent person. And at some level, you know that every spin of the roulette wheel is completely independent from every other spin of the roulette wheel, right? So having the information of the five last spins does nothing to tell you. Even if it was a thousand reds in a row, that doesn't help you to predict what the next spin is going to be, right? In any shape or form but your brain will just click into one or the other it could go the other way there's been five reds yeah the next one must be red right again that's an equally wrong and biased way of looking at it it doesn't help you in any way shape or form and it could be you know maybe you're a liverpool fan and you think well liverpool always win away at old trafford you know uh when it's a full moon or whatever you know thing whatever pattern that you've spotted or when you know uh, when henderson starts in midfield or whatever the thing is you've you've seen some sort of a pattern that you create in your brain you and maybe it only maybe it's only happened twice before but your brain goes i spotted something the bookies haven't spotted it this is the pattern this is a this is going to give me an edge and that you know if it happens a couple of times it doesn't have to be a long running pattern might could just be maybe two or three, and I think this is the the outcomes of these previous events will confirm confirm my belief, which is a bias that this thing is going to happen. You're nodding there, yeah, because I think even if you um you can really change it around is that the bookies or the the broadcasters will give us information that will support that belief. If you look at um, any of the things that was expected goals from each team, and it's really one that's pushed. And again, my conspiracy theory head would come on and say Sky Sports pushed a lot. Is that because they want people to do handicap betting on their sister website, Sky Bet? It's kind of like they're pushing these information or, you know, when I think I don't know whether it was mentioned in the podcast or mentioned um, it was sticking my head that when Kieta and Tiago started together on a certain thing, they've, they've, they have they've never lost a certain game or they never. And it's we're always been given all this information. We're being overloaded with information that will will get us thinking about certain bets or thinking, oh, well, if they haven't lost together, they're not going to lose today. That doesn't mean that there could be four, to, four lads sent off in the, in the first five minutes and that will impact the game. We forget about that because we're given all this information. As usual, that's totally useless information. Like I love Paul Howard on Twitter will always go on about the expected goals. He says, like, why do we have these stats? And it's just for gambling stuff because we don't need to know a lot of them. I know you talk about corners or, or stuff like that, that it might give you an idea of what team is on the attack more in that particular half or possession or or certain areas of the pitch. But the amount of, because of the technology, the amount of information that we get overloads our brains and then we can get different kind of bets out of And the big one about that roulette thing is like, if you were saying, oh, it must be black, and then next thing another red comes out, you said, oh, it definitely must be black the next time. You're doubling down again. And then you're after losing some money, then, then you're putting more money on it. Sure, it has to be black. There's been seven or eight reds now. And then you kind of go, it's another red, and you kind of go, well, it definitely must be black. And then if it's not, I must stick with red. So you're constantly been getting information from the previous ones. And the one like the 49s and the bookies, if they still do it, I don't know. Like the hot numbers are two and six. The cold numbers are 30 and 41, whatever. And you're kind of going, the information is just given to get you thinking about, oh, maybe I, I need to place a bet on this. So you're constantly being... Um, while in bookies or online, you're constantly being um, 
give them information that will tell you, come on, let's have a little bet on this because this has happened so much in the past or this hasn't happened. And again, I think that leads links into exactly what that is saying there, that we seek information. But I think we're not only that we seek information, we're being bombarded with information. And that's the problem, I think, a lot of the time. Yeah, I'm waiting until we get the expected corners because <laughs> we've got expected goals. Corners, believe this or not, maybe you're listening to this and you're not aware of this. The amount of people that I work with whose main market that they gamble on is corners in football, the number of corners are kind of over, you know, a certain amount over unders on number of corners in a soccer game is just bananas. Right? That is just it blows my mind. Yeah. Usually three things, usually yellow cards, corners, and goals or something. I remember a couple of lads that I know they used to do a certain bet like that. Um, and then you're kind of going, well, a certain referee would give out a certain amount, or there'd be a certain amount of red cards, and all Liverpool Everton is, is historically a lot of red cards in the game. So you, that will be thrown at you before the game. So you're thinking, yeah, there must be a yellow card in this, um, or a red card. And then the bookies will give you all these different specials and say, well, for under such and such a goal over, a yellow card index, I think you used to have. I don't know whether it has it where a red card will be a certain amount of points. I'm just, I'm being brought right back here now. And the corners or throw-ins or possession or whatever it might be. And we know that if you're in play, you can bet on hundreds of different markets. You could nearly make up, you couldn't make up a lot of them that are on it nowadays. And that's the information overload. It's not like the old days. It's either a win, draw, away win, home in or a draw. Um, and a couple of teams together it's just now it's just we've been bombarded and we're being bombarded with stats online on the apps the gambling apps and then that kind of links into a lot of these biases or beliefs because we do believe we have an insight into it because we've been given all the information yeah and you mentioned there as well I mean the, you know, using the information of you know, the five previous red spins on the, the roulette wheel so you think it's going to be black and then it comes up red again so you double your bet uh, on black again and so on, which is back to the sunk cost fallacy, right? You're you're doubling down on the bad idea, you know, to fix it, right? Yeah. Again, all these things tend to work in conjunction with each other. Uh, the next one is the false consensus bias. So we believe everyone agrees with us. Now, this may not uh, apply in a major way to gambling, but I suppose this is this topic that the the CHO region eight put up is eight ways your brain is preventing self-awareness and self-awareness is pretty useful in recovery right because like I said earlier on we have a tendency to become our own worst enemy right and it's those conversations we're having with ourselves in our head now again the gambling industry and many other industries do plenty to nudge us in certain directions and influence us and bombard us with uh, information and inducements and incitements to go and do things right so they're very, very aware of all these different biases. Their marketing teams are very aware of all these biases, right? But uh, f- uh, that false consensus bias, we believe everyone agrees with us. I suppose the first thing that pops into my head on, on that one is, like if you are, let's say, young male, right? Because don't kind of discriminate against women who gamble and there are more and more women coming forward seeking help, which is great. If you're a woman, listen to this. Please do get in contact if you need help. But the, the, I suppose the sociable face of gambling, certainly in Ireland, is young males, right? So, I mean, there's that consensus, I suppose, among a certain cohort, especially if they're into sport, that everyone gambles, right? So there's that feeling of consensus that, well, all my mates are doing this. 
you know, we're sitting in the pub, we're watching the match. Everybody has their phone out and everybody has different apps open. Everybody's talking about their accumulator and everybody's saying what the odds are on different betting apps. Um, that's the consensus that this is normal, right? Which it is for a lot of people. That can be a trap as well, because if that becomes your picture of normal, like I'm a little bit older than you, Tony, and I suppose everybody's lived, lived experience is different. But like when I was in my early 20s, like bookies was where Elvis went, right? Like there was just not a thing. Obviously, online gambling wasn't a thing. I'm nearly 50 now, so going back to my early 20s, online gambling was not a thing. But just gambling on sport at all, like in my friend group was like, what who does that like this just that's for elfless like what the consensus was that's what old fellas do they back horses and greyhounds and we can sit in the pub and we can talk shite or watch football match or whatever it might be gambling just never ever ever came into us i know you only kind of got into gambling when you're 24 when you had your first and again it wasn't part of our um like you know when I started working in the pub, I was 18 and, you know, we worked hard. It was a busy pub. We partied hard, you know, nights out. I was about going out and having a few drinks and going over across the way and talking about football, listening to music, um, going to nightclubs, um, chatting up women, meeting women, whatever that might be. And it was gambling was never a part of it. It was, it was seen as this thing that was done in the turf accountants by older men. Um, and probably even, you would probably even look at like, you know, these are Egypts. They're like you know, they're why are they wasting their money? It would have been seen as a, as a, as a waste or something that was done by, and it was mainly horse racing. So like horse racing wasn't sexy to to us. But then I think when the football and again punters by Aaron Rogan really shows how Harry Power grabbed that initiative and really brought gambling into young people's lives. I suppose in their market and stuff, which was brilliant the way they done it. And that's when it became fashionable to bet on football matches and becomes part of the conversation. And then if you couple that with the broadcast companies pushing all these information and odds on us, and then the company saying, well, there's a market on this. Because the markets that exist a lot of times, I think, are for people who have gambling problems because anyone in their right frame of mind is not going to be gambling on how many throws there are in the first half or and how many Trent Alexander-Arnold will take. But these markets exist, I think, for people who may need to get that quick you know, that thing doubling down that we talked about. But it was definitely not part of our lives. Like, you know, when I when I went to um when I had my first bed, it was it was it was someone who was that it was a friend at the bar. He was an older an older friend or customer used to come in. And gambling was part of his life, but it wasn't part of it wasn't my best friend or it wasn't my my kind of circle of friends that introduced me to it. It wasn't that the rest of them were going off betting I said, Oh I may do this. And um but what we'll hear nowadays in recovery is that you'll hear that, and I hate the expression FOMO, but it's that fear of missing out of everyone else is doing it. You know, what's the Cranberries albums? Everyone else is doing it. Why, why don't I don't know. I can't think of the name of the album, but it's that it's that whole thing of if I'm not doing it, there's something wrong with me. If I'm not doing it, I'm missing out on the crack or the buzz because I'm not I'm not involved in it. Like I always go back to the, the time United were playing Southampton in the in the Carling Cup final, I think it was at the time with the League Cup final. And I'm sitting in the bar and I, I, I decided that I wasn't going to drink that day. I was just going up to drive up. I was I was driving, so I had minerals and I was sitting there and everyone, get, one of the lads came in and gave out a tip for this horse that was running about six or seven to one. And everyone around me, I was sitting in the kind of in the snug area and everyone around me was on this horse and they put it on at halftime during the match and the horse won and he was getting congratulated. I didn't fear I was missing out on it, but people in early recovery fear I could have had that winner or, or 
or I wasn't involved in the banter. And then if the friends are not aware of it, then you're there's that added anxiety. They're saying, well, why aren't you putting a tenner on it or a fiver on it? Like, what's wrong with you? And even my, my best friend Niall at this, if they, you're not drinking, what's wrong with you? You're mad. And every time I, I might go up and I might have a Heineken Zero, you're drinking that diet Heineken again. And it kind of like, I don't feel I need to drink to be connected with people. Now, before I probably did because it was part of what we did or if I didn't do it, there's something wrong with you. And when you're trying to, when you're trying to fit in or connect, and that's a lot of time with gambling has nearly become like having that drink or if you don't really want to have it with that peer pressure. And it's not maybe peer pressure other people are putting on you, but peer pressure you're putting on yourself. And it's that because because I've become so comfortable in my own skin and in recovery and from doing this work and personal development, I'm kind of okay with going up and saying, I don't need to have a drink or I don't need to have a bet to enjoy watching a sporting event. But a lot of people, especially younger men in recovery, it's kind of like that fear of I can never do this again. I'm going to miss out on all these different situations. Again, linking back to previous times when you had a bit of crack around it. And I think that can be difficult in early recovery. Yeah, and it's it is a challenge, and I suppose that kind of group think or that kind of everyone. Yeah, what well, the Cranberries album is everything. Everybody else is doing it, so why can't we? Was that it? It was something along that was great album actually, good band. But yeah, it's that thing where, it's, and that's that identity change as well. Where you know, I smoked cigarettes for twenty years to go, and I started when I was like eleven or twelve, so I definitely felt it was part of my identity. And then when I stopped, I was like, who, did, who am I? <laughs> right? I don't go out for smoke breaks with the smokers and work. I'm there. I'm with the non-smokers now, but I don't feel like a non-smoker because I've been smoking all my life. Uh, you know, you know, I was I spent 20 years agreeing with the smokers that this was a, a legit thing to do, even though deep down I knew it was a really bad idea uh, and felt very conflicted about it, certainly as the years went on. Uh, and now I'm in this other camp and I'm trying to develop a consensus or an agreement with them, even though it feels wrong. <laughs> you know? And it's nearly like that missing out then as well. Like, you know, nowadays people go outside for the street and you're left at the bar and you're on kind of going, you're like, you're the one being on the outside of everything now because everyone else is out having, you know, chats outside or outside smoking for 20 minutes and you're sitting there on your own. Like a lot of my friends would smoke or vape or whatever. I was like that thing, I suppose. Um, when I was in prison, um, when I was in the, you know, working in the kitchens, you know, you go out in your break and everyone smokes and drinks tea with loads of sugars in it, but everyone smokes and you're going out and you're seeing them rolling and you're, you're smelling it and there's a familiarity there. And then I'm, I'm, I'm sitting in the cell on New Year's Eve. I think I've told, probably told a story in the podcast and I'm sitting there and I have tobacco in the, in the cell because it's the currency for getting your hair cut or whatever else. And if I had a lighter that night, I would smoke because the familiarity, because I'm surrounded by it. But also I rationalize, said, sure, I'm in here. I'm bored. What's the point? Sure, I can just do it while I'm here. And then I'll give it up again when I go back. And that's a lot of what we'll hear in recovery is it's Cheltenham week. I'll just go back and look at it or I just have a bet this week and I'll sure I'll stop then. But if I had gone back smoking that night, if I had a lighter that night, I would have rolled up and would have smoked a cigarette or listened to a Mel May ringing a new year. But because I didn't, I got through that compulsion to do that. But if I had a lighter that night, I'm sure I'd be probably still smoking again because it took me years to give them up. I'm, I'm like yourself, I'm off them 20 something years, but it's like that in that moment because of a lot of things lining up, you know, the stress of being there um, being surrounded by it, rationalizing, saying, sure, I'm here. What's the point? Sure, I'm here for a year and a half. Sure, I'll smoke for a year and a half. And then when I get out, I'll stop again. But the problem is once you break that seal, you end up back where you are. Probably gone off a bit topic that in in our discussions there, but it does give us that sense of that kind of I want to be fear of missing out or, or need to be um, 
in a certain group or to be, you know, if I'm not in that group gambling, then there's something wrong with me. Now I'm very strong in recovery in that sense is that I don't feel I'm very, no, I wouldn't even say strong in recovery, strong in my own sense of self that I don't feel I need to have a bet on to fit in the group. If they decide that I'm, I don't, I can't be in that group because I don't gamble. That's fine. I just won't be in that group. But for younger people, that can be difficult. Yeah, I'm, but that is that self-awareness piece, which is yeah. ultimately what this is, is a part over supposed to be about. Um, just move on to the next one, just to go up against the, the clock here. But the next one is a really, really important one, which is hindsight bias. And sometimes you'd hear about this in other contexts, maybe on the radio, they'd have psychologists or different people on talking about hindsight bias. It's where we overestimate our ability to predict outcomes. Now, could there be anything that is <laughs> more strongly linked to gambling? You know, that overestimation of skill. Like, even the bookies can't predict the outcome of a horse race, but what they can do is price it, right? So they can protect themselves, right? And they can price the whole field, and they know which way the market is moving. So if the market is moving in the direction of a of a horse that started out at 10 to 1, say, for some reason, and loads of people to start piling money on that, they just cut the odds on it, right? And they can lay off, you know, some of their bets with other bookies and all this stuff. They have lots and lots of things that they can use to protect themselves. And if uh, some rank outsider wins at high odds, well, a small proportion of the market would have had their money on that rank outsider. Most people would have backed the favourite. So the bookie still wins and a few people get a big payout, right? So... They're covered, right? They can't, we hope, predict the outcomes of a horse race, but they can protect themselves financially about whatever eventuality happens in that horse race. You, the punter, cannot. Right? You cannot do that. You can just hope that you're correctly predicting the outcomes of the horse race or whatever the event is and that you're winning more than you're losing, which is practically an impossibility uh, over a long enough timeline. Obviously, people can win individual bets. And the other thing with hindsight bias that comes up a lot in our work, Tony, and I'm sure you see this a lot as well, is people are in early stage recovery and they're checking results, right? Because they're interested in sport, right? That's normal. But if you're in early recovery, it's a really, really bad idea because you look at yesterday's results and you go, oh, Jesus, I would have backed them, you know, and oh, what price was that? Oh, Jesus, I would have, and I would have thrown that, that, and that into an accumulator and that would have given me this price. And now I'm after losing a thousand euros uh, on a tenor bet because I, I didn't gamble, right? I'm missing out. There's an opportunity cost. I'm losing this opportunity to make money and have fun and, and excitement and maybe pay off some of my gambling-related debt by not gambling. So recovery sucks. This is stupid. <laughs> and you're setting yourself up for relapse, right? That hindsight bias is a big, big trigger for relapse, I think. Or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a very dangerous thing to be doing. Like people pick out their accumulators and do it as if that's what they would have done and then see the outcome. And, you know, sometimes they'll win, sometimes they'll lose. But again, going back to the first one, we won't remember the, the phantom bets that we've done to lose. We remember, oh, I could have won a thousand euro on this tenor. And it really is. And I think the big word there is we overestimate our ability to predict outcomes or not word or sentence. We overestimate. And we feel we have... Um, you know, we have a, a kind of a, a say on the outcome of it. And, you know, you will, you will, if I, if I am back in um, Liverpool against Watford as next league game, so I'm back in Liverpool based on at home. I have information at at home. You have the, the previous stats against the two clubs. You will, you will do your bet based on a certain amount of information. But in any given day, we've seen the Watfords of the world beat Liverpool 
they bet them 3 0 the year they won the league to bet them. I think I don't know, it was in Anfield to bet them. I think it was in, in, in Whopper's ground, Vicar Droll. But I think we overestimate our ability to be able to predict the outcome because there's so many variables at play that can happen in any particular event. Now, nine times out of ten, Liverpool will probably beat Watford at home. Um, I should touch wood there. Nine times out of ten, they probably will. But there is those times when we backed our judgment for that to happen that it doesn't happen. And then, you know, then that's when we go back to blaming. But I think that I think the, the word is overestimate because I think there's so many variables in place when it comes to gambling. We can't be truly like if we if we, if we all had the ability to predict the outcomes, we'd all be millionaires. And um, when it comes to gambling, but it's that thing of you know I must be right or I should be right because did this happen? So, um, yeah, definitely it's it's a big one for gambling. And the next one then is optimism bias. So that's where we think we deserve more success than others. And look, optimism, like in a in a bookie shop, don't be optimistic, please. <laughs> or in a casino or on some online gambling site, don't be optimistic, right? Assume the worst, right? The most likely scenario is that you will lose money, right? There, and that's normal, right? The gambling industry has to pay its staff, they have many staff that to pay all their overheads, to pay their shareholders, to pay all the managers and the CEOs and everything else, which means they have to make a profit, which means that more bets have to lose than win, right? And that applies to everybody. Nobody is that special that they're automatically entitled to more winning bets than losing bets, right? So a gambling venue or a gambling website, or a gambling app is not a place for optimism, right? It's a place where you should over... X amount of number of bets, like over a hundred bet, like every hundred bets that you do, you're going to have more losers than winners, right? That is pretty much guaranteed. If you gamble online, go back through your betting history. I can pretty much guarantee you that you're running up a net loss, right? You have to be, otherwise there'd be no bookie shop. There'd be no gambling website. They have to make a profit, which means you have to lose money. Ideally, you would view it as a form of entertainment, not a way to make money at all, because that's not what it is, unless you own a bookie shop or a casino. So that optimism will mess you up every time. Thoughts on that one, Tony? I suppose my thoughts are probably from a non-gambling point of view. This time I kind of look at it and I think it's that comparison piece. Like we're, I think in life we're always... uh, you know, driven by consumerism, comparing ourselves to someone else who might have a bigger car or better wages or bigger house. I think for me, recovery, it's about getting to that space where you're happy in your own skin, but also happy in what you have in your life. And I I think for a long time when I was trying to regain or get back on my feet, it was always like I wanted to get back to the levels of, you know, being the respected manager in the post office in different ways. And a lot of my focus was on that and comparison of my old life versus my new life. And for I suppose when when I was back on social welfare for a while and struggling, it was kind of like, it was always that want to get back to where I was. And that drove certain behaviors that thankfully it was never gambling, but it drove certain behaviors, maybe taking too much stuff on or working too much or trying to have fingers in too many pies, trying to get back, find to find that somewhere or that something that would give you the same feeling of, um, of inverted commas success of being a branch manager and then I really had to look at myself within that and to say like that I don't deserve any more success than others I just deserve to be happy and what does that happiness mean to me and I think that's where I try to pull it back that I, I try not do that comparative piece anymore and uh, that's what I try to do in recovery I don't always get it right but I think that that self-awareness of 
what's important in your life, what does happiness mean to you? It doesn't mean that we have to be driving the best of cars or have be living the biggest house or going have the best of clothes, whatever. Um, and again, I go back to that minimalism uh, documentary I saw on Netflix really got me thinking around consumerism. And I think that for me, for a long time, gambling was that way to be able to buy a lot more stuff to make myself feel better. So I think now I just, I kind of look at myself and I kind of, well, if everyone else has success, brilliant. I don't try to compare myself to many people anymore. Um, 99% of the time I get that right. The odd time while I'm passing down by here or in the offices, I, I feel sorry for myself because I'm passing 20 odd car dealerships and kind of, I want, I want, but then I really bring it back to, I'm happy where I am in life. I think that's for me, that's recovery in a nutshell. Um, but that can be difficult in today's world. Yeah, that's, that's a challenge. It is a challenge most definitely, but I suppose to be able to be happy with what we have right now or to take some gratitude for the things that we have going for us right now is really, really important for anybody, whether you're in recovery or not, to be able to take a moment to be to, to count some of the things that you're grateful for in your day to day. Now, last one, just before we finish up today, uh, is what they call in-group bias. And I think uh, the way to define it is we believe our group is better than others. And I think we touched on this earlier on with the false consensus as well, that idea that we believe everyone agrees with us. You know, th that's that kind of group mentality, that group think. Um, and I touched on it as well, where I had, you know, the identity of a smoker that learned behavior from very early on as a child, seeing myself as a smoker, what that meant to me in terms of my identity. And, you know, I remember, oh God, this woman I worked with a few years ago, she used to gamble in uh, casinos in Dublin and she she uh, she described it as a form of a fellowship, uh, which is kind of interesting because she had been through the fellowship 12-step meetings in her life as well. But she, she would play kind of card games, physical card games in a physical casino in Dublin. And that was her, her place to go, you know, and that was her fellowship, the people at the card table the group you know now a lot of people gamble in isolation but usually they start off gambling in groups and they would see themselves as part of a group even if they're gambling in isolation what are your thoughts on that tony before we finish up yeah i suppose it's, it's that belief it's us against them and if it is the collective if someone wins in the bookie office it's a win against the establishment nearly um and that drives the you know that drives that you celebrate other people's successes and then that, that can nearly link back into the one above it um, the, we believe we deserve more success than others because even the group dynamics will always be dynam you know, different dynamics within the group I don't know whether, as you said I, like when, when gambling um, I don't know whether the group element of when gambling addiction is a very, I think, is a very solitary thing when it gets to the extreme ends of it so I don't know how that would really fit into um, gambling, but I can see what, how it would be about self-awareness because if we're not aware of, of our own blind spots within a certain group that can have an impact on, on us um, but it's definitely something to think of that there is definitely that fellowship in in the um in gambling as well like you know especially in casinos i suppose people play certain machines and you know people could be even loaning mon people money when they're down on their luck and uh sharing tips and and some of that so it does give you that sense of that that fellowship or brotherhood that when you are if you are in recovery there's a sense of loss and if that's part of your identity as you were saying as well so i think it can weave its way a little bit into gambling talk but um, I think like the one above it, it's it's a little bit more about life around how we see ourselves within wider society or within our own groups. And as, as I was saying, in recovery, I'm very comfortable in my group in that I don't feel I have to be 
a certain way within that I'm comfortable in recovery and that's why I always say that when my news came to light it was done very publicly while that was difficult it really has helped me in recovery whereas I am very much now people will still talk to me about gambling you know like I was even talking to someone there last week and he was telling me about you know how they're doing this thing in Cheltenham and I could see him changing I think I might have mentioned this last week see him change and thinking oh should we talk about this I'm okay with that like I'm fine with that I can I I'm comfortable enough to say listen I, I don't need to talk about that but lots of times I'll just indulge it or I'll just you know pretend I know what I'm talking about and it's not trying to be certain it's just trying to make sure the other person isn't uncomfortable around me and I think that's that's where I'd be with that so it's yeah it's good it's a good way to pick apart isn't it the, the kind of different cognitive biases and um one or two definitely will definitely resonate with a lot of people who are in recovery listening to the podcast absolutely and um, look we'll leave it there for today we'll get back to our day jobs hopefully you found that useful and obviously a great example of in-group bias is liverpool fans thinking that they're better than everybody else you know so there is that <laughs> so um hopefully now next week we've a couple of good guests coming on next week we won't divulge yet but hopefully next week is one i'm really looking forward to so we're back to um talking to other experts in the field next week which should be really really good so make sure we check it out yeah, with lived experience as well, so they're not yeah. academic types. Um, uh, so it's going to be a really, really interesting one. I'm looking forward to that. Okay, dear listener, thank you so much for tuning in, and we'll be back next week with the Problem Gambling Podcast. Take care. Bye. The Problem Gambling Podcast is proudly sponsored by Gamban, the simple and effective way to block access to online gambling on all your devices. If willpower slips, Gamban doesn't. Go to gamban.com to find out more.